As you're grabbing your seat, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them with you. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Uh, this morning I'll read from John 20 verses 1 through 18. This is uh, John's account of what happened on that day that we're celebrating today, the, the day that they found an empty tomb and what they not only didn't see, but what they did see. Uh, John 20 verses 1 through 18. Um, I'll read from verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in, Aram in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you this morning, enjoy a celebration of your risen son, Jesus Christ. And as we approach your living word, would your spirit illuminate the text to us? Would your Holy Spirit prompt our minds to believe that Jesus is indeed alive? And then would this objective truth travel from our intellect, our brains to our hearts? Would our hearts be transformed by this glorious truth that your son Jesus conquered the grave and that all who believe in him find life in his name. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. The uniqueness of the scandal of the Christian religion rests on the mediation of revelation through historical events. 
Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events of history. To some people, this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique, because unlike other world religions, modern man, us, has a means of actually verifying Christians, Christianity's truth by historical evidence. This is a quote uh, from an early century, uh, 20th century New Testament scholar named George Ladd. And what he's getting at, the point that he's getting at is, is that he's speaking of the absolute foundation of Christian faith being rooted in objective events in time in history. Things that we can point to and test and see if these things really did happen or not. And while scripture, while the Bible does provide us um, and instruct us how to live a life that would be honoring to God, those teachings that we find in scripture are absolutely inseparable. They are inseparable from the events that occur in scripture. In fact, Jesus's teachings are baseless and rather useless if they are not paired with the events that surround this character of Jesus. Without these events, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, the very infrastructure of the Christian faith falls apart. And Jesus becomes merely just another good philosopher with a series of good ideas. Now, there is an inseparable relationship between what Jesus taught and with what Jesus did. And if you were to pick up what we call the Gospels, there's four of them in, in the Bible. We call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would actually find that this is the case. Perhaps today you pick them up for the very first time and you read out of curiosity. And what you find is that you're not reading um, a, a book with good moral ideas but you're actually also reading a history book. You find that these books aren't just recording some ideas of this man, Jesus, and these things that he taught all those years ago, but it's actually recording the very events that happen that surround him. And if you're feeling very ambitious, you could actually cross-reference these things, right? You could pick up other uh, history books, and you can take all the names, and all the dates, and all the places, and find that it lines up with what other historians say about this time. That these are real people in a real time that you can point to in history and say that this really happened. They are consistent with history. This is why when we come to passages like this that we just read in John's gospel, that it really doesn't contain much of Jesus' teachings. It actually reads more like a news story. If you were to uh, open up your internet browser this morning and read through the news, you, you see this story, extra, extra, read all about it. Man who was put to death rises from the grave. See, John wants you to know 
that Jesus is not some sort of fantasy. He is not a character of fiction. No, he was a real man who really lived and he really died and really rose from the grave. In this particular news story that we're going to look at, it relies heavily on the eyewitness testimony of three individuals. We'll walk through all of their testimony together. And so we begin with this character of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, she was a a demon-possessed woman that Jesus healed. We actually, believe it or not, we don't know much about Mary Magdalene. She she doesn't show up. She's actually not one of Jesus' closest friends, but she is a follower of Jesus. And so a few days after he was put in the tomb, she is going to uh, the gravesite. Right? She's going to the gravesite, and we know from other accounts that they wanted to prepare the body uh, with ritualistic um, spices, if you will. They wanted to prepare the body for burial, and they didn't have the time to do it on the Friday that he was crucified before the Sabbath, and they couldn't do it before the Sabbath, and so it had to wait. And so she arrives at the gravesite only to find a surprising scene. The stone that sealed the tomb had been taken away from the tomb. Literal tombstones in this time period, they were designed to fit snugly into these opening of these tombs. And the stones weren't meant to keep anything from the inside coming out because frankly, there was no fear of that, right? Dead people don't normally get up and walk out of their graves. So they didn't have a concern of that. No, the the tombstones were placed there to keep the outside things from going in. They didn't want animals coming in and ravaging the deceased's bodies. They didn't want grave robbers to easily come in and steal these these bodies. In the same way, in our context, this stone was taken away. It was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out as if he was trapped of some sorts, but rather so that we could get in and see for ourselves, that the tomb is indeed empty. But that's not Mary's initial sh- uh, uh, initial reaction. It's not one of joy. It's actually one of shock. You can imagine the shock that, that uh, happens when she arrives, having seen the stone removed. And you can't blame her for assuming that somebody has tampered with Jesus' gravesite, and they've put forth a considerable amount of effort to do so. If this happened in our current setting, if you were to visit the gravesite of a loved one only to find a giant hole in the ground with no casket, you would automatically assume that somebody has come and desecrated a very special place in your own heart. And you would be angry and you would be deeply distraught and you would be agitated. And so it's no surprise to us that Mary feels the need to go uh, in haste to to tell somebody. Perhaps she went to tell somebody who who might be able to help her with this predicament, who might be able to do something about it. It says that she went to two of Jesus's closest followers, uh, Peter, and then another disciple identified as the one whom Jesus loved. We believe that the disciple who is identified as the one whom Jesus loved is actually John the person that wrote this book. This is his own personal uh, eyewitness account of this story. He's the author of the story. Mary goes to them and tells them what she saw. And she assumes as we've already established that someone has stolen the body. 
in Mary's mind, Jesus is still dead. But where's the body? The body has been placed somewhere else. The thought that he could actually be alive is not even a realm of possibility in her mind. But then as the story unfolds, we come across these details. And we look at the details and they seem to kind of challenge Mary's theory that Jesus's body was stolen. You look at the details and you say, something's not adding up here. This is a, this is a little bit of a bizarre scene. Let's take a look at it. Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, they actually engage in a little foot race uh, to the tomb. Um, It talks about uh, both of them running together. And then the one whom Jesus loved arrived at the tomb first. This is, there's nothing significant in this. It's, It's just a detail. It's John recording the accuracy of what happened. He wants us as the reader to, to know all the details that let it out. If it is John who writes the story, if he is truly the disciple whom Jesus loved, he does. uh, It seems like he wants to make it a matter of record that he is faster than Peter, right? That he beat Peter to the tomb for all eternity. Let it be known that I'm faster than Peter. (laughs) When the disciple whom Jesus loved arrives, when John arrives at the tomb, he doesn't go into it, but he does peek in and he sees something peculiar. And this is where we're given the new detail where something just doesn't quite seem right. Something is off. He looks in and there are linen cloths that were lying there. It's evidence. Right? These were burial cloths, garments that they would wrap around the bodies of deceased individuals. And there was a lot of them. Right? And then the evidence builds even further when Peter arrives. That there's more to this scene than just a stolen body. When Peter arrives, he doesn't just look into the tomb. He actually goes into the tomb and he sees the same thing that the other disciples saw, but he sees also a little bit more. He sees the linen cloth lying there, but then he sees the face cloth there as well. This is the part that would have been wrapped around Jesus's head. And it's not with the other linen cloths. It's, it's, it's actually on its own. It's folded up neatly in its own spot, intentionally separated out. If this is a scene of a crime, if somebody has truly committed a theft here and you're an investigator and you're coming on the scene, you look at those cloths lying in there and you say, that's bizarre. Because two things, two separate things would have had to happen in the mind of these grave robbers uh, for it truly to be the case. First, the grave robbers would have had to have the strange inclination to steal the body in a naked state to, to the point where they actually went out of their way. Right. I, for whatever reason, they felt the need to unwrap this body and steal a naked body out of the tomb before they leave, even before they leave the tomb. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that these grave robbers would have also had to have had the strange inclination to clean up after themselves, right? They, they unwrap the body. Uh, and, and then in the middle of a, of a crime, a break in, they would have had to take the time to, to, to neatly fold up the face cloth in an orderly manner and set it off to the side. I don't know about you guys, but I don't even like folding my own laundry. 
Right? Can we agree that the folding portion of doing laundry is just the worst? That's why nobody likes to do laundry because they don't like to fold their own clothes. And so these robbers, like, they're folding the clothes of a dead man. Jesus is indeed missing. But who would carefully unwrap the body, separate the headcloth, rolling it up by itself, and then make out with, with uh, this mutilated body? They'd go off with this naked body. It makes no sense. If Jesus' body was indeed stolen, they have gone through an awful lot of bizarre steps to get there. At this point in the story, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he walks into the tomb, sees what Peter saw, and then he makes up his mind. He's seen all the evidence that he needs, not to convince him that somebody has stolen the body, as Mary claimed, but rather that something far more significant has happened. John sees the evidence left behind, and he believes that Jesus is alive. He doesn't understand all the ramifications yet. That's what verse 9 gets at. It's a limited belief because they didn't understand the scripture why he must rise from the dead. Basically, the beloved disciple, he understands that the empty tomb suggests a risen Christ, but he still doesn't grasp the larger context. He doesn't understand why this had to happen. He believes he's alive, but he doesn't know why he had to be alive, why it needed to happen. But eventually, all of these things will be made clear. Their minds will be illuminated of why this all had to happen. Those disciples end up leaving the gravesite. And we're left with Mary Magdalene, who's not just not quite there yet. There is a lack of belief on her part. She's still in grief, deep despair. She is weeping outside of the tomb because the empty tomb isn't enough. She thinks she's sitting there thinking through all the rational explanations. What on earth could have possibly happened? She wants more evidence. In 1963, there was a 14-year-old girl uh, who tragically passed away um, in a church bombing in Alabama. She was actually the target of um, a, a racial attack. Her name was Addie Mae Collins. And after her death, she subsequently was buried in a rundown graveyard in Birmingham. And her family would visit her for, for years. And in 1998, her family actually decided that they wanted to move her casket to a nicer cemetery. And when they went to exhume the casket to their utter shock, there was nothing to be found. There was no casket. There was no body in the plot. Obviously the family was distraught. They were heartbroken and they wanted answers. And the cemetery officials theorized many different possibilities. But perhaps the tombstone um, was misplaced or, or it got switched with uh, something else. Perhaps we just are incredibly unorganized and have poor records. And this isn't really where her burial plot is. The worst case scenario, perhaps the casket was stolen by grave robbers. But never once in their investigation was it suggested that Addie was actually alive. Because they knew 
that an empty grave isn't enough to prove that someone has risen from the grave. You see, the empty tomb here in our story, it is necessary evidence, right? It's important evidence. A missing body is not conclusive proof by itself because for all we know in the story, perhaps he was stolen. In a court of law, the prosecution bears what we call the burden of proof. The burden of proving that the defendant is guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. There is a required standard of proof that needs to be provided before a verdict is reached. And in the same way, there is a required standard of proof that we need to prove that Jesus was resurrected. And while the empty tomb is a very strong piece of evidence, we're not quite there yet. The empty tomb and some guy's linen cloths won't count for much to the naysayer or the critic. Jesus had to be seen. We're forced to ask the question. We know there's an empty tomb. So where is the body? What has happened to the body? And if Jesus was never seen, we would have never been talking about it to this day. Right? If Jesus' body truly was stolen, their claims would not hold up. Mary, in tears, looks into the tomb, and the intensity of the drama continues to build. We, We keep getting further hints as to what has happened, and the revelation of it all is escalating. Right in the first part of the story, just the stone was removed. And then there was the linen cloths. And then there were the linen cloths neatly who folded up with this head cloth. And now Mary sees two angels sitting where Jesus's body should have been. This latest development implies that Jesus's body has not been stolen, but that God has something to do with this mystery. There is a supernatural element to this somewhere here, somehow. And they ask her, why are you crying? Almost as if to say, Mary, this isn't an occasion for sadness. This isn't an occasion for sorrow, but this is an occasion for joy. You don't need to to, to cry. In her despair, Mary says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary sees two angels, and she still isn't convinced that Jesus is alive. There's only one person that will remedy Mary's deep sorrow. And that is Jesus. As she continues to cry, a man arrives at the gravesite. It is Jesus. Uh, But in her despair, she thinks that he's the gardener. And in her distress, she doesn't even recognize him. And he asks the same question that the angels ask Woman, why are you weeping? But then he follows up with another question. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Notice that he doesn't say, what are you seeking? He's not saying, Mary, what will satisfy you? What in this world uh, can I give you that will calm you, your despair? No, not what are you seeking? Mary, whom? Who is it that you're seeking? Mary responds once more, please, sir, if you know anything, if you know anything, would you just tell me? I'll take the body. I'll rebury it. I won't call. I'm not here to cause any trouble. I just 
need to see his body. I just need to see it. Nothing that Mary has seen yet has convinced her that this body hasn't been stolen. Her mind is still on this, uh, this thought that Jesus is dead and the body is missing, missing because it's been stolen. Not the stone rolled away, not the empty tomb, not the linen cloths, not the two angels here, not even the sight of Jesus himself now. What we read here is really three different testimonies, two, if you include John and Peter's together. And there's contrast here between Mary and the others. But the, the, the disciple, the beloved disciple, he didn't see much. He didn't have to see much. He saw enough and he believed. But Mary has seen and she does not believe. In her blindness, she is seeking and not finding what will fulfill her. And I would not be surprised if there are some in this room this very day who can relate to Mary, who seek and seek and seek, but do not find. They look for all of these other things that will somehow make them happy or fulfill them, or satisfy them. They seek, and they seek, and they seek, and they do not find. And there's always that, 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 that burning in their hearts, that there has to be something more in this life, because nothing is satisfying to me. And I am in despair, and I am in sorrow. This is Mary's story. And it's not until Jesus himself takes the initiative to reveal himself to Mary, to realize who she's speaking with. Jesus only has to say one word, Mary. Oh, Mary. And then the lights click on the sound of her own spoken name from her savior's mouth awakens Mary out of a deep sleep of despair. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus actually likens himself to a shepherd. He says, I'm a shepherd and I have a sheepfold. There are sheep that belong to me and I will call on them. And he specifically says, I will call their name. And you know what they'll do? They'll come to me. Why? Because they recognize my voice. I will call their name and they know my voice. And what we have here in John 20 is a literal example of that. Jesus calls Mary by name and she recognizes his voice. She's finally located the body. She's been looking for the body this whole time. She's finally found it. And it was better than she could ever imagine because he wasn't dead. He was alive and he had overcome death and he was well. She saw him and heard him and embraced him. It actually says that she went and clings to him. She she embraces him in such a way that she's just like grabbing on almost like, Jesus, don't leave me. I've lost you once. I don't want to lose you again. Is it really you? I'm holding on to you, right? It shows us that this isn't just some kind of a vision. 
It's not a, an hallucination from a, an hysterical woman. No, she, she sees him. But more than that, she, she grabs hold of him. Jesus is in her presence in the flesh. And it's glorious. And then Jesus says something quite remarkable, if you consider it within the greater context of the gospel of John. He says, Mary, don't cling on to me. I've got more work to do. But there's more to be done here. Now, don't miss this part. Jesus says, I won't be here long because I am going, I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Consider this in light of the entire book of John. In the entire book of John, God is identified as Jesus's father 120 times. This is the first and only time in the book of John that God is now referred to as the father of not just Jesus, but also his disciples. One commentator says that God, the father is Jesus's father, first of all, and only by virtue of his resurrection, he is also the father of those who believe Jesus. See, this is the point. We were created to be in a relationship with God, to be able to call on him and embrace him and enjoy his presence. But then sin entered the world and we were broken off from this relationship with, with God. And we were broken off, not because God was cruel, but because he was perfect. And God cannot be around sin and death. It's impossible for him to be around sin and death. If he could be around sin and death, he would cease to be God. And so we were separated from God because of our sin and because uh, of our sin, death entered in the world and we couldn't be in his presence and we couldn't have this relationship with him. And now for the first time, Jesus is saying, because of my resurrection, he is your father because of what I've done. Your relationship with God has been restored to how it originally was supposed to be. You want to know what that longing is in your heart? That there's got to be something more to life? It's because there is. And it's God. And he wired you to long for him and to desire. But in our brokenness, we don't understand that. And when Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave, he made it very clear that he has fixed everything. He has changed everything all the brokenness that needed to be mended so that we could go to God and call him our father has been mended by Jesus. We were enemies to God and now we're in his family. Now he looks at us in loving embrace and says, welcome, have a seat at the table. Mary runs to the disciples the whole story goes in full circle, right? The first time she's running and she's frantic because somebody has stolen the body. The second time she runs to the disciples and she's frantic because no, the body wasn't stolen. I've seen the body. I have seen Jesus in the flesh. Guys, no need to theorize about the empty tomb. I don't know what Peter and John told you. No need to theorize. No need to speculate about what happened. I have seen him with my own eyes. John's news report leaves little doubt. Right, Mary's testimony is a critical piece of evidence for us to consider, but it doesn't stop there because Jesus would go on to appear to many different people 
If this was the only account that we had of a risen Jesus that they saw, you wonder, ah, maybe she's lying. But we actually know that Jesus would appear to over 500 different people in this short span after he rose from the grave. And in scripture, we have very specific and detailed counts that these people have seen the risen Jesus. Michael Green, who was a British theologian, has said that the appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. What he's basically saying is, do you believe these other works of antiquity? Do you believe that, that, that Homer wrote what he wrote? Do you believe that Plato wrote what he wrote and that is accurate to, to what he penned? If you believe all of those other works of antiquity, that these people in ancient times wrote these documents, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated, if not better proven than all of these other works. Just look at the evidence. Michael Green continues, there can be no rational doubt that they occurred and that the main reason why Christians became sure of the resurrection in the earliest days was just this, that they could say with assurance, we have seen the Lord. They knew that it was he. For Mary, seeing is believing. She needed to see the body. And hear his voice. But where does that leave us all of these years in the future? We simply don't have the luxury that the disciples did of physically seeing Jesus. And unfortunately, we live in a very cynical and skeptical world that challenges the very notion that there is such thing as absolute truth. It's hard to believe anything unless we see it with our own eyes. And our world tries to convince us that nothing exists beyond the material world. Anything outside of these four walls is merely the realm of imagination and it has no real substance. And so how can I believe, Mike? How can I believe in Jesus when I have never physically seen him risen from the grave? Believe it or not, Jesus actually addresses this very issue. If you were to let your eyes scroll down the page, just a few verses in John 20, you'll find the story of Thomas, one of Jesus's disciples. And I think we often take on the attitude of Thomas. Take, take a look at John 20, verses 24 through 25. This is after Jesus had appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Now, Thomas, verse 24, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe unless I see it. Thomas thinks seeing is believing. He is profusely and adamantly in disbelief until his evidence matches their evidence. He needs the concrete evidence. What Thomas is saying is like, I'm glad that's your truth. And I'm glad that works for you, but that's not my truth. Right? Because I haven't seen him. And so I need to see that. He needs the concrete evidence. Thomas is challenging absolute truth. You see, Thomas serves as a template for us who read this story from a distance. 
Right, the author of, uh, of John, John includes this story almost as a gift to us who read this account 2,000 years later. Right? You may sit here even today and say, I'm actually with Thomas on this one. I, just, I can't believe in something I can't see. If that's you, let me encourage you with what comes next in the story. Jesus does appear to Thomas. Thomas does get the evidence that he longs for and he does believe. And then look at what Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus doesn't really discredit Thomas's faith. He's just stating the fact. Thomas, you had to see me to believe. Your faith is anchored in sight. And you know what, Thomas? That's okay. I won't disparage you for that, but this is the fact. This is a fact that you had to see me to believe. But there is a great blessing to those people who believe in me that don't get the chance to see me. Jesus addresses the giant elephant in the room. He, He addresses the fact that there will be people who believe in him who haven't seen. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, Seeing isn't necessarily believing because there will be a great number of those who do. Not in the specific sense, but in the general sense, he's talking about us in this very room. There are many of you here who believe that have never seen with your own eyes the risen Christ, and you are greatly blessed by Jesus himself that you do. And so here's the, the, the weirdness of the story is that, yes, someone had to see Jesus to have this anchor, uh, to anchor this truth in history. Somebody had to see Jesus, or as I mentioned, these claims wouldn't last more than a day in their age. But it doesn't have to be us. See, there is a myth that seeing is believing. There's a lot of examples in our life where seeing isn't believing. Have you ever seen gravity? Have you ever seen sound? How about temperature or the wind or your Wi-Fi for Pete's sake? You see, in these cases, we don't ultimately see the physical nature of them. What we're seeing is the effect of the cause. We're studying cause and effect relationships. While we can't see any of those things, we can observe the evidence of their existence. And every single person probably knows what this is like. When your Wi-Fi goes out, you know it. Why? Not because you can't see, visibly see it disappear, but because your Netflix buffers for what feels like an eternity. And it just goes on and on and on. And you think to your head, the Wi-Fi has disappeared. There is no more Wi-Fi. All of those things we cannot physically see, but we can observe the evidence of their existence. So yes, it does take a considerable amount more faith for us to believe than the disciples because we don't have the luxury of seeing him in the flesh like they did. But we do have, and I do not exaggerate in this, mountains of evidence at our disposal. This is one bit of of evidence that we've looked at today. The the very account of John is evidence, which is why Jesus tells us why he wrote this book right after the story of doubting Thomas. It's no coincidence that verses 30 and 31, the purpose that John writes for writing this book follows Thomas. I want you to take a look at it. John writes, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Once again, in a general sense, John is thinking about us. He knows that there's going to be people in this very room that are going to look at this and they're going to question and they're going to be like Thomas and they're going to say, I just need a little bit more evidence. And so, so John says, look, I, I, I know I can't give you the opportunity to physically see the risen Jesus, but I can tell you what I saw with my own eyes. I can provide you the best evidence I can muster to persuade you that Jesus did exist and that he was the son of God and that he proved to be the son of God when he overcame death and that you can overcome death as well by putting your trust in Jesus. John wants you to know about Jesus so that you can have life and satisfaction and the fulfillment that you've always been looking for in such an empty and dark world. And so I have a final serious question for you to consider this morning, and we'll close out our time with this. If you sit here today in disbelief because you have not seen, what will it take? What will it take for you to believe that an historical event actually happened. One witness, two witnesses, three. How about more than 500? This is an honest question. Is there any amount of proof that I could possibly show you to convince you that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? This morning, we've only looked at one bit of evidence, but there is so much more. And if you are seeking, I'm not necessarily here uh, for, for, for debate. I will debate if you would like to, right? But if you are truly seeking and you are really willing to consider the evidence, I am willing to provide you with as much as you need. So please don't be shy or hesitant. It would be a privilege for me to personally walk you through as much evidence as you need. The invitation is open to you. And I hope that through our time this morning and in the weeks to come, that God will call on your name and you will hear his voice and you will recognize his voice and you will turn to him through his son, Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of the resurrection of Christ. I remember, Father, what it was like to sit in the seat of Doubting Thomas and to wonder myself if these stories were really true or if they were nothing but fantasy conjured up. And then, Father, I remember the moment you called my name. And in the same way as Mary, as Mary, you opened my eyes and I clung to you. I saw how I was separated from you. And then you brought me into the fold. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit in a supernatural way, would you transform hearts? Would you call on names and would they respond to you?
Perhaps in this very moment, Father, would this be the first time they look to you and say, Father, forgive me for what I've done. I declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then would you work in their life to satisfy them and to fill them, the empty void that's only designed for you. We praise you, Father, and we give you glory in all of these things. Amen.